Revelation chapter 5. We are in a new chapter. Chapters 4 and 5 kind of make a set. They go together. We're going to take a look at that second part. Chapter 5 this morning. Turn there and put your finger there. Ask the Lord for his blessing. Heavenly Father, now in this just awesome revelation of the throne room of God Almighty, it's just a holy place, and we pray that the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, would open the eyes of our understanding and reverent holiness and awe. We might understand the sacredness of even speaking about such things. Help us to get some insights that will be practical and helpful as we put your truth into practice and be blessed. In Christ's name, amen. When I was a kid, my parents took us to Washington, D.C. for a tour, and you know, we saw the Capitol building and the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial. If you've been there, those are very cool sites, but really the, the best of all was the White House, and there's a picture there for you. Um, it was just awesome. Inside is, all, there are all sorts of rooms. The green room and this is the just the foyer with all the colonnades and the green room as I mentioned just in the Oval Office of course uh, I remember my mom saying it's amazing that President Lyndon Johnson really lives there <laughs> I was eight years old and President Johnson was our president now whether you're a child thank you for that whether you're a child or an adult course, there's a certain sense of awe and wonder about just the sheer history and importance of all that goes on in such places that impact the world as a consequence of decisions that are made there. It's kind of command central, if you will. Well, here in Revelation 4 and 5, we have a glimpse, kind of a photo visual tour in word pictures, if you will, of another kind of command central, a seat of government, a throne room that causes all other human governments, no matter how splendid or powerful or royal, to pale in significance. The throne room of God Almighty, from whom all life flows and all delegated forms of power come. Now, what are we doing in heaven around God's throne in his very throne room? Well, I'm glad that some of you are asking that question because I want to answer it really badly. The Lord Jesus has been revealing to John up until now, of course, the end of the world. That's where the book gets its title. Apocalypsis in Greek means to unveil. So the Lord has uh, chosen his vessel, the Apostle John, to be the first recipient of the unveiling of the end of human history right before the great tribulation begins uh, is chapter 4 and 5. So that's where we find ourselves. Now those last seven years are called the tribulation, not because we call it that, but because in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, the Lord Jesus calls it the great tribulation. 
The word there, depending on your translation, the Greek word is thalipsis, which means crushed or to be squeezed. The idea is to be placed in a pressure cooker of affliction. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14 also use the title of this seven-year time that ends all human history as we know it as the great squeezing, distress, tribulation. You can use the adjective, but we, the adjective that has stuck is the great tribulation. Jesus said, from then there will be great squeezing, tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. So the Apostle John, now our, we maintain and we take the Apostle John as a representative of the church alive at the time of the Lord's coming. He's caught up now to reveal what he sees uh, as the great uh, tribulation. He's caught up into heaven with a command, a voice like a trumpet, to be shown advanced history. So chapter 6 through 19 is what we call the Great Tribulation. We're in five. We're 14 verses away from seal number one being opened. So throne room time with the church present around the throne is very important set up, chapters 4 and 5, for what is to come, which will be revealed, the Great Tribulation. And so with that said, the church now safe in heaven, removed from the day of God's wrath, because it's called the day of God's wrath, and we know in the scriptures that the church is not appointed unto wrath. And so the church now, we're in in between the time of the rapture has happened and the great tribulation has not begun. That's where we're at right now in the scriptures here in chapters 4 and 5. Now, we already talked about four, but some of you weren't in four. So there were four ideas that you need to bring into the throne room with you here in chapter 5. What we first learned from chapter 4 was God's sovereignty. The first thing John tells us about is a throne, and it's occupied. And so no matter what we see happening in our lives or in the earth, God's sovereign hand is in control. That is the point. In fact, the word throne is used 46 times in the book of Revelation. And commentators say that's really the theme, is that God is calling the shots. God rules was lesson number one. The throne in heaven rules. Number two, we learned that it's not just thunder and lightning coming from that throne, because we saw it rumbling. In other words, chapter six was coming. And so from the throne, the rumbling judgment is coming, but in connection with this rainbow. So God is not just a God who is paying back evil, but he's also a merciful God. And so the covenant there of the rainbow is very important uh, to remember that the tribulation, the hands that open seal number one and unleash the first of four horsemen of the apocalypse, those hands are nail scarred. He has given the world an escape and the judgments fall on those who chose not to take him up on his promise. Whosoever will, let him come to me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever 
believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so we see a rainbow in heaven. God's people were spotted, or so it appears. Believers are seen walking in white, which means we are morally perfected in our new bodies. We are rewarded. So there's judgment there called the judgment seat of Christ. We're evaluated. It ends well for us. Uh, And we have crowns and we're seated on thrones. These are all things the New Testament promises to anyone who's born again over and over and over again. It's his throne and the church's throne. Believers sit on thrones, walk in white, and wear crowns. That is what we brought into uh, uh, chapter 4. And finally, in chapter 4, we saw God's worth. Now, the word worship means to ascribe worth to. And we see that the Lord is being worshipped by these exotic-looking living creatures, you know, six-winged creatures with eyes on the wings, both on the front and the back. And one of the creatures with a face like a lion, the second with a face like an ox, and the third with a face like a man, and the fourth with a face like an eagle. And we saw that these ceaselessly praising creatures reflect the glory of who Jesus is, his character, his work, his ministry for us and on our behalf. And so when, when, the point is, when you look at those creatures praising the Lord, we will get a better understanding and a wow of who Jesus really is. So with that information, we now go into chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. So we're going to take this last chapter in three bite-sized pieces, all right? So this would be bite-sized piece number one, all right? And let's call it the sacred scroll. So the attention in the throne room has changed now from the throne to a scroll. And that document seems very Important and it's a document he wants us to know about because he's revealed it. Now, the one on the throne is God the Father, the creator, the creator of all things. Now, we know it's not Jesus on this throne because Jesus in your text is going to approach. So whoever's on the throne is not Jesus, it is God the Father. God the Father created all things, which of course he did through God the Son, the Word, and whom he created by the Spirit, God the Spirit. But the picture here is that God the Father is on the throne. Now, about this scroll. Now, I'm a visual kind of guy, so here's a visual kind of thing. All right, here's what the scrolls looked like. All right, the scrolls, the rolls were on the left and the right, and the parchment was like brown paper that you would think of today. 
the writing lay in narrow three-inch margins, and you read from the left to the right there. And as you're reading, you're holding with the left and you're reading with the right, and the previously read portion of the scroll then is re-rolled as you read. All right? Now, just for example, the scroll of the letter of Revelation that goes to John, that goes, that John is writing is 15 feet long. So just interesting, and I do throw that in for free. Now, moving on. Now, the text says there are two kind of unique things about this scroll. Thank you for showing us that scroll, by the way. It says, first of all, there's writing on both sides, verse 1. So that's odd. And so commentators say, well, what, the idea behind that is that there's, there's, it's quite important, and there's more than the scroll can contain. It's the will of God in there. Now, uh, it is sealed with seven seals, so, so it was closed shut, as most documents back then could be, and then with a little wax and a little stamp, an insignia of somebody's kind of mark or symbol or signature, they would, could be sealed shut. Now, the seven seals give you a big clue to what this document is because it's very, very important. In the Old Testament, scrolls were sealed with seven seals that were contracts for redeeming land or title deeds or important wills. So now let's say a Jew lost his land because he went bankrupt. Uh, In the future, a relative called a kinsman redeemer could come forward and reclaim your land so that it could be kept in the family. The terms for such were written up on a scroll and then sealed with seven seals. And only the true kinsman redeemer that that the clan had authorized could come and prove that they had the authority to break those seven seals, break them, make the purchase price according to whatever was inside that scroll. Now, the analogy is quite wonderful for for us as believers. Uh, In Genesis chapter 3, very intriguing, the title deed, if we go with this analogy, the title deed of the earth was handed over to Adam, our legal representative. Adam forfeits the deed over the earth to the evil one. And all of our souls and all of the earth and all of its destinies, including all of the babies, <laughs> are involved in that destiny. Now, the devil said to Jesus, did he not? He said, you know, he took him up to a high place and he showed him the splendor and the kingdoms of the earth. And he said, all this is mine. And I'll give it to you gladly. And here's the deal. You bow the knee and you worship me. But the point I'm making is he says to God the Son, as you well know, this whole thing is mine. And I can give it to whomever I choose. And I'm willing to do that. You don't have to go to the cross. Just write, let's make it real easy. I'll give it to you legally. It'll be yours, the deed of the earth, the destinies of God's plan of redemption right here without the cross. What do you say? Just worship me. And we know what the Lord said, away from me, 
For it is written, do not put the Lord, worship and serve the Lord and him only do we serve. And so um, really we're looking for now another man related to us must wrestle our souls, our inheritance, the planet, eternal life back from the devil to be able to pay the ransom price to meet the requirements in every way. So if you're asking, just give it to me easy. What's in the scroll? The destiny of your life and mine, the destiny of planet Earth, that the key to eternal life and redemption, and if there is a world to come and there is, the gates are unlocked by what's in that scroll. But somebody's going to have to take that scroll and open it up and execute God's will as our kinsman redeemer. Now, somebody's got to step up and represent us. And the drama ensues. The extraordinary angels, the strong angel, now reminds heaven's occupants, hey, redemption wasn't as easy as you may have thought. And so here's a little drama going on. A search is now on the way for somebody worthy to open the seven seals and man alive. A couple things we all know has to happen here. Has to be a human being. Because the kinsman redeemer has to be blood related to you as a human being. And it better be perfect. Because whoever opens the seal, the seal is signed with God's seven I am. I am. I am. Times four more. The I am's of God. You know Moses was told that that was God's name in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. When staring into this self-sustaining eternal flame of Godness, he says, what is your name? I'm going to go and tell the Jews what? Who are you? And he says, you know, for short, just call me I am. All right, that's who I am. There's a longer version of that name, but he says, just, just think of it as I am. I was. I am now. I will be in the future. And he uses this name, I am. And that scroll has I am stamped along the edges. And only somebody identical in authority and nature can open that scroll. So it'll be a man, but you'll have to be equal to the dignity of the one who who sealed the deal there. That is why the angel says, okay, let's think about this, everybody. Who is worthy? Let's do a search. Let's search heaven. And John starts to get a sinking feeling, and all the angels are like, we can't do it. Why? We don't have blood. The price in the plan is that a beating heart stops in ours. We don't have a heart. We don't have blood like you guys. Sorry. A search is made in, on earth for noble men. But then we find the truth of the matter. There is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That sinking feeling is coming upon John. Then it says, and we looked under the earth too. Maybe they have lived and died. No. We searched the farthest corners of the planet. Another way of saying we looked under the earth. Nothing, nobody. And John says, well, he weeps. 
and weeps. He's, he's in despair. Why? He realizes what? Well, I was just told how the world ends and how the, uh, that I, he's going to show us how God comes and conquers and redeems the world and our souls are liberated. The bad guys lose and the good guys win. And it's all on hold. Your future, your destiny, your soul, your eternity and his on pause. And so he weeps. He gets the gravity of the situation, which we just forget. You know, it's our job to sin and it's his job to forgive. It's so easy. God is a God of love. It's so easy. His grace is wonderful, isn't it? But the heavens just want to say, Maybe it took a little bit more, and maybe you were in greater dire straits than you realize. And maybe, just maybe, if you realize and sense the desperate moment there of needing somebody worthy enough to come up into the throne room of God and face God the Father and say, lay it on me, I'll do it, the great I am. It fosters a spirit of gratitude and worship. Your life will never be the same when we realize who he is and what he did for us. That's the point of the drama. We were in a world of hurt, helpless and hopeless, damned. Every last one of us, damned. And that call goes out, Who's going to save them? And it's quiet. And it's implying whoever steps forward does so voluntarily. That's what it's implying. He's worthy, yes, but he needs to step forward and say, it'll be me. I will. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. By his flogging, we were made whole. God, the only begotten, he was the only one who could do it. And he didn't have to, but he chose to. And apparently he could not stand the thought of eternity in heaven without you. So time for the weeping to be turned to joy and the biggest collective sigh of humanity about to be breathed. Verse 5. Then when one of the elders Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a heart, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So we'll stop here. We'll go from a sacred scroll to our second point, a worthy lamb. And now we meet the worthy candidate up close and personal. And we find that he has two Old Testament names for God there in verse 5. But you know what I want you to see this morning is is that not only 
he needed to be worthy in essence, worthy in morality and quality, but he had to triumph. He says, oh, the worthy lamb has triumphed. He had something to do. Something to do was to save us. And so, interesting to me, the elder has to remind John about things John already knows or should know. Isn't he just like us? We are like him. John knows. Listen to this. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. John 16.33. Let me repeat where I found that. John, oh, John is weeping and weeping because what are we going to do? Oh, no, there's nobody worthy. And nothing comes to mind. <laughs> nothing comes to mind. John, 16.33. I could just see one of the elders going, John, John, John 16.33. <laughs> Remember what you wrote and what you saw and your eyes saw and your ears heard and your hands touched concerning the word of life. Remember all of that? No, of course he doesn't remember all of that. He's just like us. We're in a panicked, overwhelmed moment and everything we know to be true that God has done on our behalf in the past and accomplished it goes out the window and we have to get Remember it all over again. And so there it is. He tells him, listen, somebody's worthy and somebody has triumphed. And John, didn't you see him triumph? How did he wrestle that scroll out of the devil's hand? Oh, he triumphed. It was work. God the Son sweating drops of blood to get that deed. Oh, he says he's going to come forward and he's going to take it gladly, but it's going to cost him sweat drops of blood and it doesn't stop there, does it? Six hours nailed God, the son, nailed to a piece of wood that he created. Nailed there six hours. And then the cry of desperation. God, my God, God the Father, why have you forsaken me, God the Son? The cry of desperation is followed by the cry of accomplishment. It is finished. He's triumphing. Three days later, proof, an empty tomb. Resurrection, death defeated, sins paid for. The grave is empty. Yes, the worthy one has triumphed. Now, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he gets two names here from the Old Testament. They're important. Let me explain them. Jacob, in the Old Testament had 12 boys. These 12 boys are going to be the progenitors or the heads of Israel. From those 12 boys, all Jews come. You can think of those 12 boys as 12 12 states of Israel. All right? So Jacob is also called Israel because from Jacob comes Israel. All right? So on Israel, Jacob's deathbed, Genesis 49, he calls in the 12 boys. And he says, the Holy Spirit has given me a word about all 12 of you. Step up one at a time, and I'll tell you something about how it's going to go for you. So up steps Reuben, number one, and then number two, number three, and then Judah steps up. And dad is laying there on his deathbed, and he gets all excited. And he says, man, oh, Judah, your brothers are all going to praise you from you a king. And all nations 
will serve him. He will be like a lion. And that stuck. The lion from the tribe of Judah. So in the flesh, humanly speaking, Jesus is blood-related to Judah. But that's not all. He's also blood-related. Now fast forward a thousand years to David. King David shows up, and the Lord says to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, David, from your own body, I'm going to bring a king, and he's going to sit on a throne forever. From your body, a human being related to you, your great, great, great times 28 grandson will be the Lord. So David says, well, how does my Lord say to my Lord? I mean, how, how, how are you guys running this thing? You know, but from my body will come God. God will step into Mary's womb, who is blood related to both David and both Judah. So if you go to Luke chapter 3, you will see a genealogy from Adam with a list of about 76 names. And you'll find Judah and you'll find a thousand years later, you will find David, and then you'll find Jesus through the womb of a virgin related to David and to Judah. Now, why is this important? Because Israel is the object of chapter 6 through 19. It's the time of Israel's trouble. Jeremiah chapter 30 calls the great tribulation Israel's problem. It's all about Israel. So is Israel going to be destroyed? Well, how can it be destroyed if God himself is a Jew? God, the Lord, on the throne, concerning his human nature, is a Jew. He is the root of David. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Lord. He is a Jew. He is from Israel. Therefore, those seven years directed at Israel, Israel will triumph. The Bible says that the Antichrist will, will, will surround Israel with all the troops of the world. And in the last seconds, Israel looks up and confesses their sins and turns and cries out to Yeshua, their Jewish Messiah, who is, who is the root of David, who is, who came from them. He will save them. That's the point of bringing this up, is Israel's going to go through the tribulation and Israel be saved. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, all Israel shall be saved. And that doesn't mean every last Jew. It means that the Jews, as a nation, at the end of the tribulation, will have a massive Christian conversion. Not every last Hebrew, but generally speaking, there's going to be a big Christian conversion. And that's what's up with those two names. I've got to move a little bit faster, but to the vision. Now, the vision, if you take it literally, you kind of have a scythe grotesque scene there with a slaughtered lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. What's that about? You know what? It's, it's one of the easier ones 
in all of the Bible. So let me help you out with it because it's really easy. Well, the slaughtered lamb that's standing, not laying dead, but standing with eyes open. So Jesus Christ in glory will have visible signs of his sacrifice. So John is seeing the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John said in, for, in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, what does he see about this lamb? He has this vision of this lamb with seven eyes, perfect vision, perfect understanding, omniscience, it's called, seven horns, Bible speak, always the same thing, power. Seven perfect horns, power. All powerful, all seeing. And then the sevenfold spirit, Holy Spirit everywhere, connected to those eyes, everywhere at once, omnipresent. So theologians just look at that and say, yeah, it's the Lord. He is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Therefore, shoulders back, eyes blazing with fire, head up, he walks up to God the Father and says, I'll take that. I'll take that scroll. I got it, Dad. And he says, thank you, son. And the seven I am's, not a problem for the seven I am's. He says, I am the bread of life. Please pass me the scroll. I'll open that. I am. When the Lord says in the Gospel of John, I am, he's using the divine title. That's why the Jews pick up stones to kill him. Because he loves throwing the divine title around. I am, I am, I am. But then he'd add some things to it. So he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Alpha and Omega. So he can take the scroll because he can unzip all of the God statements because he is God in a human body, now glorified, standing there. And so he opens the seals because he is worthy. And then once he does that, all of heaven just kind of explodes in worship, love the, that prayer and worship go together. And by the way, the image in the world of everybody playing harps in heaven, there's your verse. That's where it all comes from, right there. They had harps. We play harps uh, and sing unto the Lord because of who he is and what he's done. Let's finish up real quick. Last bite. Now they're singing three songs, and we're going to learn them. And they sang a new song, so song number one. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels. Now the angels went in, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands Time 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang song number two. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Song number three. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing song number three to him who sits upon the throne and to the lamb. So God, the father, God, the son and be, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And my favorite line in the whole chapter, the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell done down in worship. Now, I'll tell you why in a minute, why that's my favorite. As you suspected, I would. (laughs) Number one, the sacred scroll, right? Number two, the worthy lamb. And number three, the heavenly songs. And as I've told you, there are three. Now, apparently, the first one's a new one. New one from what? Well, we sang one in chapter four. And it was an Old Testament song. God, you created all things. Well... It's old in this sense. You know, back in the day when the Lord was making the earth, it says in Job chapter 38 and verse 7, that the angels sang with God in great joy as he created. But there was nothing like this then. Just the earth coming into existence. And by the way, from nothing he created all things. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 15, and he made the stars as well. Now let's sing a new song. This one becomes one of them, for them, and dies on a cross and spills his blood to save the whole world and redeem all of creation from a curse. Oh, that... That's something new. (laughs) Now, we saw shadows of it in the Old Testament all all the way from Genesis 4. There's a blood flow all the way to Malachi. We get it from afar, but here's the real deal. So they sang kind of a new song there. Chorus 1, just a couple things to note. It says, you know, billions of people from every tribe, language, and tongue. Now, you think America is a molten pot? Wait until you see what the Lord has been up to all over the earth. Now, God's detractors and enemies would say the gospel is exclusive. This verse is your proof text. For the love of the Lord and the gospel is inclusive because when we get to heaven, you're going to see representatives from 196 nations currently. You're going to see and hear people speaking 6,800 languages that we know of and people from 15,000 different people groups. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. They're all going to be there. You excluded no one. Thank you. That's point number one. Point number two of the first song You were slain. This is incredible. God slaughtered for sinners. What a sacrifice. And so really it's saying you spared no expense. Thank you. And the last point of song number one, on top of that, you're making us kings and priests. Now the word priests there, because you are going to be one in the next life, whether you're a woman or a man, the idea is that we bring people closer to God and represent God to them. That's the idea of being a priest. And kings. So the song is saying, look, on top of dying for us, 
and forgiving all of our sins. Then on top of that, we're seated on thrones with you and you're going to call us kings and queens and royalty, judging angels and judging the world, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, us judging angels who bow before us. That's what it says. So they sing about it. This is too crazy. We're singing songs of joy about not only you die for us, but then you honor us like this. Wow. Song number one. Now, song number two, the angels can't sing song number one because he didn't redeem them, the good ones. The bad ones are unredeemable. Nobody knows why. They didn't get the second chance. We get the second chance. Something different about us. It's a mystery. Lucifer can never get saved. Sorry, that's how it is. Humans can do that. So chorus number two there in verses 11 and 12, thousands and, well, really, the word is murios. It means myriads. So thousands upon thousands of angels just say, hey, we want to sing too. So they enter in, and what are they saying? Lord of glory on that cross, it makes us think of seven things. All power belongs to you. The word there is dunamis for dynamite. All they're saying there is no greater power than yours. Number two, all wealth. The Greek word there is plutos. It means riches. And all they're saying there is there is no wealthier resource or no one richer than you. Number three, all wisdom. The Greek word Sophia. No one smarter than you. That's the line they're saying. Number four, all strength. The Greek word ikskus, it means strength and power. No one stronger than you. All honor, the Greek word is tame. It means, really, they're singing, no one is more valuable to us than you. And then number seven, or number six, rather, all glory, doxa. No one's more splendid than you, Lord. And then finally, all blessing. In the Greek, it's eulagia, eulagia, and it means valuable. Nobody's more valuable. We don't appreciate anybody more than you. Nobody is more praiseworthy. So song number three. Now it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And now John says, well, this thing is maxed out. We're at overflow capacity. And now I'm looking around in every creature, verse 13, in heaven. So, A, interesting. If there are other creatures in heaven, which there probably are, creations, we don't know about them, but we do know one thing. They are worshiping God with us. Number two, he says, then creatures on earth, everybody on earth. And then he says, under the earth. Damned or saved, Christian or not, they'll sing this word, these words. Because listen to what the Lord says. For it is written, the Lord speaking, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Every tongue in the Greek, the every there. Guess what it means? It means... Every, every tongue saved or no, ours will be a, a confession of gratitude and praise, and theirs will be a concession of defeat. And it may not be as pretty as our song, 
but they will say the words because God says they will say the words. And then it says, what? Every creature on the planet, on the seas, and what are you talking? The animals too? Wow. Well, yes. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 as we wrap up. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, but on, on that day the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So Paul's saying the whole of creation is yearning and longing and waiting for the day when we're around the throne singing praises because they want to join in as well. And so I picture, I picture the dolphins leaping and the geysers gushing and the trees clapping and the birds singing and the tails wagging (laughs) (laughs) and the bees humming and the wind whistling and the brook babbling. You think I'm making this up? Psalm 148. Let me read to you a verse. Praise the Lord. From the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, praise him. Snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all you hills, fruit trees and cedars, You wild animals and all cattle, you small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens, old men and children, praise ye the Lord. And here's my favorite part. The four living creatures who've been praising God from eternity That's what they do. They're kind of like God put them out there to reflect who he is and say, kind of check me out, keep me accountable, all the eyes on front and back. And they keep saying, yeah, holy, 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 who was and is and is to come. They say, when they see the scene of the whole world just liberated and enjoy, and we're singing, the angels are singing, and even the bad guys are singing, oh, worthy is the Lamb, you know, at, at the the, angel, the four creatures go, finally, you guys finally get it. We've been telling you this for forever. You know, we've been singing this. And, and they think they finally get it. Everybody's standing and applauding. The God who gave them life became one of them, bled and died on, on a Roman cross with guys spitting in his face and pulling his beard out and stripping him naked in front of everybody and nailing him. God, God, almighty God on a cross mocking him. Come on down, Mr. Savior of the world. And that four living creatures see every tongue finally instead of cursing and slandering and gossiping and backbiting and all the stuff we do with our tongue. Finally, every tongue in all of creation, on top and on the bottom, everyone, all praising God. And the living creatures go, 
Amen. <laughs> Finally. Yeah, duh, that's what I hear because they're so wanting that to happen. And so are we, the one who all things exist and what he did for us. And then for us to stand there and just hear the whole universe pitching in praise to God. That's a day we look forward to. Amen.